we haven't really trained our immune systems well. We've become very, very clean. And so when we look at the atopic diseases, dermatitis, asthma, and um, food allergies, really the source of those may end up being many of the same things. And so the hygiene theory is one of the theories that gets bandied about. We've become very clean. We, we are using Purell. Right now during COVID, we're using an excessive amount of Purell. We're keeping masks on. Is there gonna be an unintended consequence of that? Hi there, food enthusiasts. Thanks for tuning in to Future Foodcast, where thought leaders in today's food industry discuss the trends and the technologies that will help shape the future of food. Today, we're speaking with Lucy Gable, who is the CEO of FAIR, the largest NGO investing in food allergy research and education. Lisa Gable has served four U.S. presidents, two governors, counseled Fortune 500 CEOs and represented global public and private partnerships and nonprofits with an end goal of moving organizations to higher levels of performance, which is actually always a large challenge. So with that, um, Lisa, I want to welcome you into Future Foodcast. And uh, if you want to give us a little more background um, on yourself and about your mission uh, currently. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really wanted to do this podcast because the future of food really does have a significant impact on individuals with food allergies. Uh, food allergies is a disease that's risen since 1998. Uh, you didn't really hear much about it before. And not only did it start to rise in 1998, but children were developing multiple food allergies. And so we currently have 85 million Americans avoiding buying the same top nine proteins due to life-threatening food allergies, food intolerances, or because they live with people who do. So it's an issue that as we're grappling with things in the future, uh, we're funding innovation using AI and technology to improve our food system. We want to make sure that the impact of these proteins is well known and recognized in the reformulation and formulation process. Great. Well, yeah, thanks for that overall background on the focus on food allergies and so on. Tell me a little bit about how the organization actually, um, as I'll call it, communicates, I'll call it the research and the messages you have out to, in a sense, those of us that are impacted by food allergies. So sure. I've many channels, not only in the home, but we have workplace, we have education, we have all kinds of places that I'm sure you have to get, get that uh, story through to. We do. We have actually 50 medical, major medical institutions that are part of the FAIR uh, clinical network. Those are institutions that do uh, basic research. They do patient care and also transformational research and clinical trials. And so they are our first line of defense for getting to the patient, uh, but also working with food allergists. The other thing is that on the education front, we have a very robust program, which is moving education through our uh, learning management system uh, as uh, to registered dietitians, to teachers, to medical professionals. One of the things that we know is that medical professionals actually aren't trained in food allergies uh, in most cases, it, because it is a fairly nascent disease category. It really started rising since 1998. And so we've developed materials uh, that are actually used by individuals who are currently doctors or individuals going through medical school. Uh, we also have another channel, which is our YouTube Living Teal channel. Uh, during COVID, I was fortunate enough to bring in some Hollywood producers from MTV and Sony and other uh, different uh, well-known uh, institutions in Hollywood. And so we took all of that medical content and now we serve it up in bite-sized forms uh, to families across the world, uh, making sure that uh, individuals know what they can do to keep themselves safe and also alternative cooking styles that they can use to make their lives easier. That's great. So yeah, repackaging what is um, not simple content to understand into something simple, breaking it down, finding a way in my case to say, oh, Jim just got bit by a tick or whatever the issue is related to food, um, uh, that there's an easy way based on, I'll call it, the concept of starting with a symptom or a need, if you will, and then driving into exactly where I want to go quickly without becoming an expert on food allergies, which is a much larger topic. So there really are, it sounds like two completely different audiences, what I'll call the professional audience you're trying to train, but then separately, I'll call it those of uh, the rest of us, I'll say, myself included, who are what I call ignorant for the most part, except for the fact when food allergies actually bother us. So it is a challenge to sort of talk to two completely different audiences and get the right message through. 
It is. It absolutely is. I came and my career actually started in Silicon Valley after I left the Reagan White House and Defense Department. And so learning how to take very complex information and deliver it to the consumer so they understand what it means to them and they can make decisions, you know, is, a, is an area of expertise that I was able to develop at that point in time. And it's really been essential in the food allergy space, because as you said, there are actually a couple of audiences. There's the professional, the individual, the registered dietitian, the doctor, uh, the physician's assistant, uh, even the teachers and the school nurses, but then you also have the families, those individuals who develop a food allergy. What we're seeing is uh, in 1998, you had the rise of food allergies amongst children. And all of a sudden today, the biggest rise in food allergies, people are going into anaphylaxis with eating a food they've eaten their entire life. Well, you can imagine how frightening that is if you're 33 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, and all of a sudden you start suffering anaphylaxis and you're sitting there eating your meal. You don't know why. So FAIR has been the go-to resource for that. And I would say the other audience is everyone else because we all have to do what we can to keep people safe. And so whether you're the mom that's hosting a slumber party or if you are uh, possibly the dad that's in charge of bringing the food for your kid's birthday party at school, uh, fully understanding how to read a label and how to understand what's in that label. And as it applies to one of your children's friends, because that is where we see children sometimes having the biggest problems is someone will serve them food and they didn't properly read the label. So it's everybody's responsibility, but there are different levels of information that people need. You know, that's a great point. And I don't actually know how to make that simple for, I forget the food professionals, I'll say uh, for a second, but it's the rest of us. So in the simple world where I come from, we didn't even know when I grew up that you should even ask if there was a food allergy. But today, I'll call it those of us uh, who deal with children, in my case, grandchildren, on a daily basis, um, you're right. It's important to understand in your, when you're in a social context, how you may be impacting others, however your participation is around food. So the, the, the only thing I would say the average person probably knows, like myself, is, gee, um, does this have peanuts in it? I can ask that. And gee, does it have gluten? And short of that, I, most of us, I think, as I'll call it parents or other adults working with children, probably don't have a lot of awareness on, in the sense, how to approach something like that. You're setting up, as you said, a birthday party. Maybe it's a, a celebration after a you know, softball game or something like that, whatever it is, whatever the event is. And you're not quite sure, in a sense, how to move forward to properly plan that and worry about the fact that you have in a sense, a group of people with probably a wide range of different capabilities around food sensitivities. Well, and that's one reason why the work that your audience is doing is so important. We just announced a partnership with Nielsen IQ and Label Insight uh, because the use of apps in order to provide people with the information related to what's in food is made so much easier and having that called out in a bold way. Uh, secondarily, as we're trying to standardize what we call precautionary allergen labeling by law, uh, food companies have to label for the top nine allergens. We just had sesame approved, uh, thanks to President Biden signing it into law, that sesame is now considered one of the top nine allergens. It's a hidden allergen. We don't always realize that it's in spice mixes or in hummus or tahini or in other types of, of food that someone might be serving to you. And so working closely with the food industry to ensure that we have a level of transparency about what's in the food that people eat has become critical. It's, it's a life-threatening issue. And so we look forward to working hand-in-hand -hand with, uh, with many companies in this space in how we best communicate uh, to, the, to the consumer, no matter who that consumer is, to the purchaser, what's in the food and what information they should look for. Uh, so you actually, you hit me in two different directions. One, you're right, there's an app for everything today. And I forget about that sometimes, uh, mostly because if you're over 21, you might not remember there was a time when there weren't apps and I'm way over 21, but you're correct. So when I'm thinking about back to my original problem of, gee, I'm planning a, a party for a softball team that won a championship or whatever we're doing. It's like, I forget today, uh, although we have to always worry about what I call uh, increasing restrictions on personal privacy, right? The mm -hmm. funny part about it is you think about me planning that softball game get together. Um, yes, there's better information available on the food side. So in theory, I could build a menu and say, okay, ask yourself if the right apps were there, what, is, what are the uh, elements of the menu you're looking at and put together a menu. The other side of it is, oh, I have a softball team, you know, maybe 12 or 15 people on the softball team. And you're saying, okay, 
So who's allergic to what? And maybe the right idea is we should have an app that says, okay, here's, here's the menu that you're proposing and let the, in a sense, individual apps on the phone that each person has say, hey, that menu works or it doesn't work kind of thing. I'm allergic well, to guess it. what? You'll be happy to hear that FAIR is rolling out an app because we know that it's desperately needed. And we are working with big partners like Nielsen IQ Label Insights in order to design that. But we're working with actually many, many companies because these questions are important. And, uh, and not only is it important for people to understand uh, what's in the food so that they can keep someone safe and secure, but there's actually another thing that's going on right now, which is very exciting in the food and beverage space and in the agricultural and science space, and that's in the area of prevention. What we've learned is one of the reasons why we've had the rise in food allergies is that in 1998, in that time period, a mistake was made. And pregnant mothers and uh, were told not to feed their children the proteins that can trigger an allergic reaction. We've come to learn with peanut, we know for sure because we did the research on it and it's now part of the dietary guidelines that you actually need to introduce peanut to a baby early and often between four and six months old and then for a period of two years. It needs to be a consistent part of the diet and that's shown a precipitous drop in peanut allergies. Well, FAIR is actually uh, doing a research study called SEED with 2,000 babies and we're gonna introduce 2,000 babies to eight different proteins. And we're going to see if the same effect happens, if we can actually remove this disease as being a primary problem for young children. And guess what? One way we're gonna do that is working with food and beverage companies. And there are a number that are actually in the space investing in this concept and making sure that information is easily available both online and in our app. Yeah, so there's so many different ways, unfortunately, to have to travel to try to solve these problems. So one of them you brought up is the transparency part. And when you go back to um, even legislative requirements about what you have to have, um, they aren't, I'll call it 100% guidelines. So if I actually said to you, as an example, what's in salmon, you'd say a salmon filet, you'd say, well, salmon filet is in a salmon filet. Is it, does it have anything else on it? No, it's just salmon filet. Well, what's in there? It turns out that they actually put additives in there to stabilize the product, yeah. and they're not even required to list those as additives. They're just considered stabilizers, and they're part of it. So over time, you're right, I'll call it the regulation will improve around, in a sense, hopefully full transparency as to what's in a food product for sure. Um, but we certainly aren't there yet. And then, of course, you have the entire food chain that you're processing that food through, right? So you start out with whatever the grower or the producer had, you move it through a series of stages, and what else happened to it? So um, getting better information all the way through the food chain, you know, hopefully um, there's solutions out there, like Paramount has farm to plate, but there's many out there that are trying to, in a sense, improve transparency. And then you've got the processors and the manufacturers trying to improve, hopefully, labeling along with the legislation. But then the other side of it that you really hit was the um, issue of now I've got the food and the problem is how do I, the thing you're really hitting on, which is I call it the biggest thing for all of us. I have people in my family with food allergies, uh, severe ones in some cases. And the deal is you ask yourself, well, is this a genetic thing to your point that you were born with or is it something that we've developed? And if you roll back in time, you'd say, gee, you're right, it doesn't appear that everybody was born with food allergies. To a degree, we have sensitivities, I'll say, but they increase or decrease. So the research you're doing is huge. A uh, little bit I know uh, my son who has uh, IBS, if you will, or Crohn's mm -hmm. disease actually has a lot to do with, it's not a simple thing. There's multiple factors that come together to say whether or not you're healthy, whether or not you have symptoms, uh, whatever, all of those things uh, to determine the level of sensitivity you have at any point in time. And part of that has to do with your things you're like your own microbiome. Why would you react differently than I do kind of a thing? And I'm guessing a lot of research goes into that area as well. There is. And we know that um, we haven't really trained our immune systems well. We've become very, very clean. And so when we look at the atopic diseases, dermatitis, asthma, and um, food allergies, really the source of those may end up being many of the same things. And so the hygiene theory is one of the theories that gets bandied about. We've become very clean. We, we are using Purell. Right now during COVID, we're using an excessive amount of Purell. We're keeping masks on. Is there going to be an unintended consequence of that? Uh, we talk about eating dirt, being next to dogs, being next to grass, introducing children to a wide dynamic of different uh, elements that's going to train their immune system because that's what you do when you're young. 
And so, as I said, with prevention, we told them not to eat the foods. We're making people very clean. And then the question is what's going on um, and other factors that might be causing problems for someone and have them have a propensity to develop an allergy. Yeah, you know, it's another great point because you're right. What is what I call best practice in 1982 or 1952 is not the same in 2002 or 2022. So you keep having these changes. So it's, it's like you hear about vaccines, follow the science. Well, but the science isn't static. It changes all the time. And so you're right. The fact that you're driving that forward is a huge deal. The lesson learned, of course, is that there isn't an endpoint to that level of learning. And what is the right practice will change again. So the hard part, and that's where I think you add a lot of value, is, hey, where's the place where I can go say and find out now what's the current best practice, not last year before, but now give me the latest research on how to approach a problem, especially around food, which is, I'll quote, a, a core thing for everybody on the planet is, in a sense, how, how do you get the right food? How do you prepare it? How do you, in a sense, have a healthy relationship with it and for you and your family, which is a big deal? Absolutely. And we talk a lot about food as medicine and it's a new term. It's a term that's been around for a while. And I was, as you may know, in the health and wellness space, so working on a large scale project around childhood obesity. And so food as medicine got thrown out. But I think it's taken on a new level of clarity today that's going to enable us to address all of these things. One thing I always remind people is that we avoid proteins and we consume proteins for different health risks. And so we're in the process of gathering the data on what people are avoiding and what they're consuming. And the reality is for food allergies, it is a life and death matter. If you accidentally eat an allergen, you could die in up to three minutes. So it's not something that can be automatically grouped with everything else. But from a learning and data standpoint, there is no reason that we are, should not be working with cancer and Crohn's and colitis and right. other types of diseases as an entire industry to understand what people are avoiding and what they're consuming, and then what are the various functions that that is solving for them from a personal health profile. Yeah, and you're right. I, I actually have friends who have had cancer and so on, and sir, they're certainly getting treated on whatever the custom program is their doctor recommends for that. But separately, um, you're right. I'll say there's plenty of hearsay evidence that somebody says, oh, I made these diet changes and it did, it did improve my situation with cancer and so on quite a bit uh, or any other disease as well. My son has the same thing with Crohn's. He's learned to manage his Crohn's better through, um, I'll call it just in a sense, trial and error. You know, he didn't go to your website to figure it out, but through trial and error, he's learned a little bit about what causes a stronger immune reaction and which doesn't. And the whole point of, like you said earlier, is... The body is a, a very complex system, and my body is different than yours, different than anybody else's. And so it, it comes down to it's a personalized, yours is different, mine is different. And mm -hmm. to get mind tuned right does depend a lot on the right nutrition, understanding, and more than nutrition is understanding um, exactly what works for me better than it does for you based on who I am at this point. So there's a lot that's evolved there, and that's a big challenge, I think for people to try to figure out what their best roadmap is. It is, and that's why we're at such an exciting time. You know, I've been in the food and beverage, I started in high tech and then I moved into the auto industry. Now I'm in the food and beverage industry. So I've been, and working with pharma. So I've crossed all these different lines, but what's fun for me is they're all coming together. Uh, we talk a lot about just-in-time meal delivery. And, yeah. when, and, and what's exciting about that is, and we talk a lot about personalized medicine. So what if we are at a point in 10 years that we can produce just-in-time meals for people adapted to whatever their disease profile is in a manner that's cost-effective, easy on delivery, and something that, uh, that they can enjoy, giving them that taste, value, and convenience that we try to give them through any consumer product good. So it's I, I, we're seeing so much in this area and I believe 10 years from now, we're, we're going to blow the doors open on this and actually have a cost-effective, sustainable way. And the state of California is playing with it right now. They're, they're demanding it within the health insurance coverage uh, based on a new law. Um, it, it has to be cost-effective. I don't think it's cost-effective, so I'm not quite sure if California's uh, calculated in the total cost of what they're speaking of, but they're setting an idea and a precedent that actually we may be able to fulfill in 10 years working with everybody who's listening to this podcast. Awesome. Yeah, that'd be great to see that move forward. It's, I'm sure it's not simple. Uh, I think the other thing is the information has to come first, 
And then the solutions kind of come second as you learn what works and what doesn't work. And then like anything, even, you know, call it in the tech industry, as you know, anything we do in any industry, fundamentally, we have to have in a way to, um, I'll call it a market test or um, proof test in effect that we're doing the right thing. So you figure out a way to roll it out in a small scale, see if you get the effects you want. And then, and then after that, come back and say, okay, this looks effective. We've got to modify the practices a little bit, but now we have something that we can apply as a process to a larger audience in effect. And so is there some sort of a, with your organization, is there a process on how that gets rolled out internally when you do the research and so on? Well, we're in the process through the data that we're collecting both that we'll be collecting through our app, but also we have through the FAIR Clinical Network and Data Commons. And through that Data Commons, we also have a biorepository, which is basically human samples. And so FAIR is driving towards being the largest resource for this information, working with people across multiple dis different diseases uh, to be and accumulate that information because it is about data. It's really understanding not only the data as to what people are avoiding and what they are consuming, but secondarily, it's their disease profile. And so through our patient registry, through our biorepository, through the data commons, that then takes that combined information someday, we're not there yet, that combined information from consumer behavior with the actual manifestation of their disease. It's, I just, I just get so excited because we're on the cusp of doing this, having come from high tech, I know uh, how quickly things can change. Uh, one of the things we talk about is AI. You know, I've, I know that during the last two years, AI has been used more for product reformulation. Well, if you put in different information at this point of reformulating a product and actually flag the allergens, uh, then maybe you'll actually create something. We know that with, uh, with beyond meat type products, with products that don't have meat in them, what they didn't know is that by using a pea protein as a substitute for meat, that that actually removes the ability of someone with a peanut allergy to consume that product in some cases. And so we need to calculate in and only, you know, artificial intelligence and other types of technology is going to enable us to truly provide and, and cross check and double check uh, where the different unintended consequences are, but where the great and wonderful opportunities are. So FAIR is looking forward to, to being a resource to partner with people to bring all these pieces together. So a couple of things that come out of that. Number one, you're doing a lot of research and you have, I'll call, it, I'll call it larger populations, let's say you're doing the research on to come up with um, directions, if not conclusions, at least directions on what might work and what might not work in many cases uh, for things. Yep. But you hit on a couple of points. Number one, there's you always have to deal with a combination of things. So you and I might be very similar, I'll call it uh, in, our, in terms of our... Um, biological makeup, we mo both might eat the same diets, but the one difference is you might be on a medication that I'm not on, and that changes everything. So it, it changes how your body's gonna handle the food, what you're allergic to, and all that stuff. And one of the biggest challenges, even today, it has been though, for a long time, is the idea, I'm on medication number one, which is solving the problem, but now I need medication number two. Wait a minute, who has the information on how medication one and medication two are gonna react on me together. And you really don't have even that uh, has been a problem for many years. And yet we don't have a quote a final answer on how to do that. I'm gonna ask, and this is just a question that's not, I don't know if there is an answer to it. I'm guessing that over time with what I call digital technology, we have the ability to capture your personal profile, my personal profile on my own health, what works on my diet in a sense. If you think about it, we have these sensors today, right? So you have the insulin sensors that say, just put the patch on. Now we can tell you when you need to eat and balance out and all that. And my father used to have a pacemaker. So we have all this technology we're adding to ourselves to sort of understand my unique profile, biologically different than yours. And so at some point, if we can capture more of that information, combine it with your information, then, then probably I, we can find out, can Jim eat that the chili dog without getting sick? Uh, as an example, but I think it, I'm guessing it's going to be a combination of the personal information about myself that gets combined with whatever else we're bringing into the environment. Does right, that and make that, sense? 
Yes, and it gets into privacy issues because what you're talking about is a way that you would have to have the information come in. You would have to uh, make it anonymous so that the scientists could look at it in general. That's a that's a key attribute, and you can't can't look and see who had that patient profile when you're doing the innovation. Uh, but then secondarily, how is it going to pop out on the other end when you're working with your doctor, or if your doctor has a registered dietitian who's part of their practice? So some way, shape, or form, all of those very brilliant technologist, and I'm not one, I've just worked with them all, are going to have to figure out how do we do this? How do we build the traps to uh, protect people's privacy while simultaneously giving them the level of personalization that's going to enable them to be healthier? I think we all know as we look at rising healthcare cost that prevention is the key, but no one actually knows how do you bring that to a patient at the very specific level that you're, you're speaking to. We're seeing wonderful things uh, being developed, I think that we'll end up there eventually, and we may end up there sooner than we think. Yeah, actually, you, that's another great point. When I think of, uh, think of for a second, um, and this is actually a larger topic I'll ask you to give me some feedback on, but we've obviously still in the, what I call the pandemic and the, for, with COVID and all that. And so we had a, in the U.S. a very severe problem back in 2020. We're having a second problem in 2021 that overall is less, but certainly hitting some people harder than others and so on. So we've learned a lot from that. The one thing I'll say about clearly there was a strong effort um, to try to build a vaccine that could deal with COVID reasonably well. And so what we have now is something that no matter what your, your view is, at least it's better than whatever we had without the vaccine, I'll say overall for, for the overall population. Even if there's specific people who can't take the vaccine for whatever reason, it's definitely an improvement uh, for, I'll call it dealing with COVID than not having the vaccine. So separately from the actual vaccine development, there was a parallel development that actually, just like the vaccine, um, I'll call it was a large test to speed up, uh, you know, how can we actually do uh, about genetic modification on editing, you know, with these uh, vaccine treatments. Um, separately, there was another parallel effort that sped up the whole privacy identity issue technically in parallel. So they created something called the Good Health Pass that's on its way out the door now that they're gonna be delivering shortly. But what that is, it's a privacy preserving technology that says, oh, look, I can actually have all this personal data about me. I can have my medical rec records and everything else. It all belongs to me. It's mine. I own it, which is a nice concept. The difference is I only share that with whoever I choose to share it with, right? Yeah. So it's a very different way than we did medical records management traditionally, where your doctor had it all and you go, hey, am I? you had to call him and ask, am I sick? Um, it's a little better than that. Now, so we have the privacy preserving technologies I think we need. They're not, to your point, fully implemented everywhere yet, obviously. And I think they're, because the, the right technologies exist, I'm optimistic that in a, I'll quote, a few years at most, we can get the right technologies in. So you can be walking around with your personal profile that you own, you control, you protect, that in a sense is only shared the way you want to share it, right? And so if you have that database, and then you have your information pushing the two together at that point says, oh, look, Jim will get sick if he eats that chili dog. <laughs> so, you know, right. I mean, and also having, having your family's patient history, you know, it's, it's interesting because you kind of remember certain things. Well, yeah, my grandmother, you know, I'm, I'm getting into my late fifties. Well, yeah, my grandmother started having that happen around now. Wouldn't you like to know exactly when it happened to her? Because that actually right. may be a big flag for you that the reason why your eyesight went completely at 46 is that something in your genetic dynamic changes uniquely for your family at that point in time. So I, I think also having the, the historical, the longitudinal data uh, that is based on, on family history is only going to help inform us versus me sitting in the doctor's office going, yeah, I think I kind of remember she had that problem. Well, that's a great point, because I think on my end, we all work hard to try to be healthier. And I can actually look at my own history, which sort of now goes on forever because I'm really old. And I can say, gee... There were points you seem to be, I'll call it deteriorating in certain capabilities, whether it was physical, mental, or whatever. But then there, it's funny, you can look back and say, well, no, wait a minute, that wasn't a permanent thing, that was a temporary thing. Well, okay, why don't you, as you said, tell me exactly what it was that caused you to do, to be capable of less at a point in time. I don't know. And what exactly did you do in, in the sense to guarantee that you're improving? I don't know. It's just, so you're right. Personally, we're all flying in the dark, I think, quite a bit. And in a sense, 
food nutrition, food allergies, and all of that, and how that impacts us individually and personally is something we don't have a simple thing. Like I say, the, the nice part is that in a sense, a diabetic who could put a patch on their arm and say, oh, look, it went up to 102 from 100, and I can see I'm off by 2%. You know, they've got, I'll call it direct, easy, measurable uh, something results. For the rest of us right now, you're right, we're sort of flying in the dark. And I do think it, it'll be a big thing. I don't know how the future is going to roll out in a sense with the technology you have, but I do think that that opportunity to, to take what is personal for me and match it to what you're doing um, will ultimately make it a lot easier. It will. I think the biggest issue I have, and you know, I've been in Washington in and out, worked for four presidents. Um, so I've covered every administration some way, shape or form since, uh, since Ronald Reagan was in office, is the regulatory system. The regulatory system was designed against a model that no longer exists. And we are talking about, and what's really causing some challenges within the FDA is my category, food allergies. Because when you look at medical foods, when you look at prevention products, products that would make it easy and inexpensive for a parent to feed a food to their child, food that's really off the shelf food, we don't want the regulation to drive up the cost for the family. And yeah. so when we look at a wide variety of using food in different ways, we really need to change the regulatory pathway so that it allows these innovations to come to market. So many of them, we literally have a few things in the pipeline right now that are just taking forever to get through the process. And yet we need to accelerate those because it could have huge potential on a large number of people. Yeah, and I'm not an expert on the FDA, but I will say that obviously with the, uh, um, I'll call it the provisional approval of those vaccines, um, that did happen at a faster pace. So as they would like to say, if they were here, well, no, we didn't change our process. We just did it faster. And that's nice to know that you can do it faster, but you're correct. It, it, they need to, in a sense, fit properly the process to, in a sense, what the opportunity and what the risks are. So hopefully they're doing that, but you're right. And we're working very closely with them on that. I should also point that out. We have a wonderful relationship with them. And so we're sort of troubleshooting through all these different scenarios with them uh, because it has, it has gotten confusing as to where different things fit. So we look at the array of products that are coming down the pipeline and are working with them to map out how those products would get approved. And again, with, a, with an eye towards keeping costs down for the consumer, uh, but in a way that also ensures the safety and efficacy of the product, which is what the FDA is concerned with. Yeah, and you hit another topic that we hadn't talked about before, but when we look at the overall uh, future food cast, you know, called future innovation and technology, and then you look at all the impacts on health, safety, regulation that come into that, Everybody's got all these strategies on how to make something better. The problem is, how do you make it better and improve it without, as you said, raising the cost? And I, I, having done lots of these podcasts, I can say, sometimes you find out, oh, this is really awesome. Here's a special something that's grown only in this one climate. And we've done a great thing of proving that there's no disease or any bugs or any infection with this thing. And you're getting something 100% pure. It's fully traceable. And oh, by the way, it's only 10 times more than the average loaf of bread you're buying at Target. Well, that's great for, you know, about half of 1% of the country or the world. But it, you're right. You have to be very sensitive to figure out how to do this stuff economically and on a broad basis. And so the fact that you, in a sense, have that perspective in there and can make what I call stronger recommendations around things that are, in a sense, more economically viable for a larger percentage of us is a really big thing. An important thing. It's very important because when we talk about meeting the needs of underserved populations, uh, you know, you've pointed out you can eat well, you can exercise, you can go to Whole Foods, I can go to Whole Foods, I can buy that specialty food. Uh, but what we learned during COVID is that, and we actually had an article in the uh, New York Times about this, is it shined a light on the economic diversity that exists and the inability of people to get the food that they need for their health risk, in this case, food allergies, because food allergy families, the rest of us could get food because we could substitute. If the thing we wanted wasn't there, then we could take something else. If you'll go into anaphylaxis over a food, you can't substitute. And so people of all uh, levels of, of financial means were suffering, but individuals who were relying upon food banks or who only had or lived in a food desert, they struggled a lot. And so we've got to focus on the economics 
And the only way we can do that is if we can broaden the base as to why the consumer product goods companies should see this as a good market. It's one reason we did the research that showed 85 million Americans uh, are avoiding any uh, avoiding the same proteins. Before Fair used to talk about 32 million Americans went into anaphylaxis. It's not a big enough market. It's not a big enough market for somebody to invest. Once we could show them that 85 million people shared exactly the same shopping habits, we became yeah. quite popular. So okay. we've got to we've got to up our ante in how we work with industry to create solutions for the broadest base of people. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. When you make your research and the data shows that this isn't 10 of us, it's 10 million of us, it has, it, then it has economic value to the companies. Um, and unfortunately, you're right. They probably are not going to react strongly unless they're required by regulation uh, to focus on those 10 individual cases they identified. But you're right. Showing that the data has a broader impact is a big, big deal. So following that up a little bit, when you think about... Um, uh, given the experience you've had in COVID uh, or seeing what's going on with COVID and so on um, and how that impacted the, I'll quote, food and beverage supply chain mm -hmm. um, that in a sense, we're all dependent on uh, and the shifts that occurred there. Um, any specific uh, changes that you might think are coming out of this going forward? Well, it's more well, of what we discovered was a, was a challenge. <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting. We worked very, very closely with food and beverage associations, which there are many in Washington and the FDA, because you may recall that the FDA, when the supply chain interruptions began, um, that they adjusted rules related to labeling of foods. And uh, that was going to allow companies to have more flexibility to make substitutions. Now, the FDA was adamant and very careful to ensure that companies could not make substitutions if that substitution included an allergen. But it caused great fear and concern throughout the food allergy community. Trust for the companies went down considerably. Well, how do I know that they're not going to make a substitution with an allergen and not declare it on package? And so I think what, what has happened is we now know this is something we have to address together. We have to figure out a way, and this goes back into my original conversation about labeling, because it's easier to make a change in digital very, very quickly for the consumer than it is on pack. And so the question is how many people have access to, you know, access to a smartphone to scan a label less dependent upon the pack labeling, because that has always been the issue. You know, it's, it's interesting as you, I'm sure many of your customers are aware when, when there were a lot of rules going into place about labeling and GMOs and other things, and it was popping up in different states, it's very difficult for the companies to do, right? They can't change the package to accommodate the state of Vermont, but they were losing a lot of money because they couldn't. So we all, we policy uh, individuals, advocates, um, the FDA, we've all got to come up with a solution because the companies need the flexibility. The more flexibility they have, they can bring the price down. They can provide you with more choices and more options, but the consumer needs to feel confident that the food that they're getting isn't going to make them sick. Yeah. And you're right. that technology provides opportunities to do that well. The other point you made, and I did a, an identity project for the state of Rhode Island, and we said, okay, let's look at all adults over 18 in the state. And if we put out these awesome tools, which we did on your smartphones and your uh, websites and so on, we gave you great tools for identity tracking and for credential management and so on. They all worked. That was wonderful. So we all, were radically successful. The challenge for us was, well, wait a minute. Well, who did you cover in the state? We only covered 92% out of 100%. So that meant there were 8%. So when we said, okay, we prove the value of the solution for identity management and credentialing and so on, privacy, preservation, all that stuff. The problem then comes back is, okay, so tell me in the next phase, how are you gonna get the other 8% engaged? And so we are looking what I call interim integration solutions now, where you take a physical item of a real ID card, put something like a QR code that allows you to link back to your digital identity. So even if you didn't have a smartphone, but you had a real ID card, let's say, we could link back to your profile if you gave us permission uh, you know, say I'm your pharmacist and you need insulin and you have a prescription for it, but you don't have a smartphone, uh, either were stolen or you never had one. 
if the real ID card had a way to give you the link back, we could, if you authorize us to access your, in a sense, prescription profile and say, oh yes, I see Jamie, you do have a prescription for insulin, we'll be happy to fill it for you. So we're trying to come up with these alternate models that, that say, Somehow, um, and technology will evolve. I do believe there's a point where we'll have, we'll have some sort of technology that will cover everybody. But the key to it is to come up with this model that says you're gonna provide alternate means of access that are equally powerful so that everybody can get there. Um, and, and so I, I do think that's quite possible actually, even with the example I brought up about the, my personal health profile, yeah, it's on my smartphone, it was stolen or whatever, that's fine. The bigger thing is where is that profile? Where does it live? Is it secure? There are actually, um, believe it or not, technology answers to those questions today. Um, so they're not rolled out to your point, but um, in production in many areas, but they do exist. And I do have spot examples of them working, which is kind of nice. Um, so it's I think exciting. That, um, I'm, I'm so excited. I think, you know, I, I love seeing all of my worlds come together. I really do, because it's yeah. uh, it's just and, and improving the health and wellness of so many people. But as you said, the issue around access is so critically important and we need to really identify things at the very granular level for, okay, what do we do about the other 8%? We need to acknowledge they exist as you have and then how do we get a solution for them? Yeah, and then the other thing too, and part of this regulation, so of course, I can't say all regulations are perfect. They usually aren't, they usually get revised in the future to improve, to fit, I'll call it new conditions as they show up, of course. So you pass a law today and the law fits hopefully pretty well, but over time, maybe 10 years from now, the way the landscape changed in many ways, it maybe not fit as well. So you're gonna modify those laws, which is fine, but you're trying to get compliance with the laws. And one of the challenges, we have this new Food Safety and Modernization Act that takes effect. I can't remember the year it was passed. I don't know if it was 2015 or 2016, something like that. But the, uh, the terms of the act actually take effect on food manufacturers and processors in 2024. Um, so it's, I think, two years from now, roughly. Yeah, I guess it's January 2024. And so the terms are fairly strict in that. One of the things thereafter is trying to do food safety um, traceability mm -hmm. uh, from basically from the, uh, let's say I eat a bad, whatever, chili dog. What was in the chili dog? Can you trace back the ingredients to the source all the way through the entire, I'll call it chain of custody or chain of processing, if you will. And then if you find that, in some cases like they did with romaine lettuce or bing cherries, that there was a problem at a farm or wherever the source was, can you trace forward and say, okay, the in a sense, the beans that Jim had in that chili dog came from this farm, let's say. And then you go forward and say, well, where where, where else was that lot of beans shipped to that we have to worry about and, and go forward, have more pinpoint traceability through the food chain, um, which would be, which would also impact certainly the food allergy side as well, if we were able to do that. So. I think I'm guessing on your end, I don't know if you get involved in, in the concept of traceability, but I think it's a fairly significant one that would help in the sense dealing with the allergens, especially if you're getting differences in the, in the products that are coming through the pipeline. You would. I mean, you see it on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I think that so many of the producers of food are so very, very careful about the allergens. And we um, we just have so much respect for the food safety professionals that we know. I've worked in the food and beverage industry since 2009. I've gone to manufacturing floors for, you know, in PepsiCo and Nestle and uh, a number of other companies. And it, I think for the volume of food that is produced, they have a very difficult job, but they do a good job. However, we have had instances uh, last year, uh, a major brand, uh, someone in our, our family of, of supporters, uh, the child had always been able to eat this food because it was a top eight free food and the child ended up in the ICU. And it was a very frightening position to be in. And I will say that the company involved uh, the president of the company got immediately involved and they and they did go through the process of trying to trace back the batch that the food came from because the mom was smart enough to to hold the box as she was getting ready to get on um you know the ambulance with her child uh but uh being able to do that at an even greater degree will be important i know the food allergy community if you asked them if they could wave their magic wand one of the things they worry the most about is i guess it's called field drift right which is that perhaps you have a series of fields and that there's 
there's, you can get, you can have a 95% guarantee I've been told or some type of percentage that the food that's being made in a top eight free uh, manufacturing facility is okay. But what you can't do is you just that last 5%. And so I think some of the things you're talking about uh, would enable people to understand a little more where the risk factors are. Is there a place in the agricultural process where you would have something that could drift through into uh, into the food as it's being picked, as it's being packaged, as it's being sent off, sent off to the processor. So the level of specificity that we can get to will allow us to do one thing, which is that we want to create um, a threshold system in the United States uh, so that we have the information on the patient side, what's the threshold of the ingestion of the allergen that causes them to react so they can do a risk assessment. But then on the side of the food manufacturer, what's the threshold that they can do as a guarantee. At that point, it's the consumer's decision by understanding those two numbers and making the decision about whether they're going to buy that product. Um, so along the, the, the recommendations or the ideas that you just articulated, those are the two places it would play out in the food allergy world. So there were two things you've been, the two topics you covered in a sense. One was talking about correctly, uh, in a sense, trying to manage costs overall on the food supply chain, in effect. The second thing you did talk about just now and, and also in a couple other steps is the idea that we have to take a risk-based approach toward health, right? And that ideally that risk-based approach is, starts at a personal end, who am I, different than you or somebody else, but then it has to go through the supply chain. Given those two factors, I'll call it risk uh, management and the cost management, any, are there any thoughts you have specifically on what I call ways to streamline or improve the supply chain itself? Any thoughts on that? Well, I just again think the, the level of technology for us being able to assess uh, what's going to cause a child's reaction or an adult's reaction, because different people are different. Some people will react after a larger quantity of food, and some people will react literally from smelling the food and touching it. So you need to, we need to have the personal information for the patient on what their level of severity is so that they can make the personal decision. On the, on the uh, side of the company, again, it's the ability to do even more of an assessment as to where the risk factors are in the supply chain for the individual that might have a food allergy. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we are, when you talk about risk, as we say, it's an individual thing, but the one thing to remember in food allergy families is that a mother tolerates zero risk for her child. And so uh, as, a, as an older adult, you may take that data that I'm talking about and make an informed decision as an adult, because you know how you're going to react to that food. Uh, the, the challenge we have is mom, she wants zero risk. And there's a reason why. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, but it's difficult to get there. It's really difficult to get there. And we explain that to the moms. Well, I was going to say, I've met those moms. Luckily, my mom was a little more tolerant. And so she let me take a lot of risks that probably would seem insane today. But, but you're right. As a parent, you're going to be looking to uh, for something that's absolute. And in many cases, we aren't obviously there yet at this point in time. And I obviously the stuff you're doing, combined with some other stuff, maybe on the personal side, and then I'll put better networking and the privacy concepts will allow us to do better than we have done going forward to help all parents in a sense be more comfortable. Um, one other thing, if we look at trends in the food industry, there are shifts all over the place. I mean, you mentioned uh, the meatless burgers and so on uh, let, earlier. Let me ask you, um, are there differences uh, from an allergy perspective? If you look at something like veganism, people who don't eat meat, does that make a difference in any way? Or is that a healthier or less healthy environment? Well, the problem is, is that we're talking about proteins. <laughs> so you're, you know, you're, you're talking about soy. Soy is a really big, it's an allergen. It's, 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 it's sesame is an allergen. And so, you know, to some degree, if somebody has multiple food allergies, the, the vegan diet doesn't work so well for them. Um, right. And so there has to be a balance in the process. Yeah, and you're right. There's many different types of proteins. And, and, and you're also right. And again, you know, I don't know where it fits, but if you put me in your book somewhere and said the chapter under ice cream, I'm in that chapter. <laughs> so the deal is I'm the dairy guy. I can handle dairy proteins and a lot of people can't. And yeah. so there's a big difference. So put our faces 
in different chapters in your book, I'm in the dairy side. I'm okay with that. Meat, decent, and you know, soy, I'm okay with that as well. But the dairy one is probably the easiest one in my system, which sounds idiotic, but it's, you're right. It's a very personalized thing uh, in terms of what makes somebody healthy or not. So I, it sounds like uh, I'll say that research you're doing is incredibly important. Unfortunately, it's 30 years too late to help a lot of people, but but um, it's one of those things you can't get it done fast enough. Let's let's put it this way on your end. The other thing is, honestly, I really didn't even know about the organization until we started this podcast. And the fact that we are doing that research and the fact that you're connecting with what I call beyond just the regulatory and the government agencies and so on, but you're connecting with, in a sense, uh, the right groups that can help solve the problem overall is a really, really big thing. So I can't uh, thank you enough for the work you and your organization are doing. I think it's really, really very valuable. And um, yeah, bad news for you. We'll probably want to follow up with you <laughs> and find out how that progress is moving forward, if that's all right. We would love it. I mean, we're at a very, uh, you know, we're at a very exciting stage right now. If our prevention research works, the seed study, feeding the protein to these 2000 babies, we'll know in a year and a half, whether or not it actually solves the problem that it would be a, that, that would be taking a very large number of people out of the food allergy space. So we're close. We, we're doing some things that will be significant game changers. We have something called the uh, FAIR Diagnostic Challenge, a $3 million challenge being competed on by, um, by teams all over the world uh, to create a system that will give us a level of specificity related to exactly the level of tolerance or lack thereof of that person um, and, and whether or not they have a food allergy. And so if, and then with labeling, if we can just standardize labeling, that's a trifecta for me. I'll feel like I walked away as the most successful CEO that's been part yeah. of this process. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think the challenge of the labeling thing is ultimately you're going to need to do better than on package labeling. And Absolutely. The, and if you're going to do that, that means, unfortunately, that what you're really talking about is real-time diagnostics. Imagine going through a supermarket and you and I are both walking down the aisle and we're both walking through what I call frozen foods. And we're both passing, I'll say in my case, ice cream or whatever, we're both going by. You find out that I'll call it your phone lights up and says, hey, these are the items that are safe for you in the frozen food section. My life with a different set of uh, items. And it's, it's kind of personalization, I think, ultimately. It, it's your personal chemistry, your, your uh, biochemistry. It's your health your health history, it's your medicines if you're taking any, and then it's your biome, and then it's all of this nutritional stuff that come together on the allergy side that say, hey, how? what's the best thing for you, the safest thing that you can react to? And you literally build a, call it a customized profile from that. And I think that's ultimately that kind of a combination of uh, information that does need to come together well. And, and you're a huge part of that driving this forward. If you are successful with what you're trying to do, improving, uh, in a sense, the impact on food allergies, the way you're going after it, it will probably uh, open up a lot more thinking about other areas of food that should also be improved as well. So yeah, so congratulations on being the first to sort of change thinking in a big way uh, on diet and nutrition beyond what we've always done traditionally. That's a big, big deal. So thank you for that. Great. Well, thanks for having me. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcasts. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 